What's up and welcome to Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries, episode 17 for the year 2016. I've given up on trying to figure out the exact dates for all these old podcasts. This podcast happened just uh, maybe a week or so after Hurricane Matthew slammed my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida and put me out of commission for about a week. Um, so I was still recovering from that in this podcast. You know, I normally ask how Mike is doing, but I think with the the situations that happened last week, I'm going to ask myself how I'm doing. How are you doing, Josh? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm, uh, <laughs> hurricanes fucking suck, folks. Um, I, I don't know if anybody keeps up with the weather if you don't live in the south, you know, and it's not affecting you. Uh, I wouldn't blame you. I, I probably wouldn't either, but, uh. Yeah, we had a Category 4 hurricane. Hurricane Matthew hit the uh, coast uh, around Friday um, Friday morning or something, or Friday afternoon, and uh, it wiped our power out for four days. So for four days, I was without power, and uh, it sucked, man. It really sucked. Like, you know, the first two days of not having power is, is fine because it's like you still have a bunch of reserves, like your batteries and food. But on that third and fourth day, all the batteries are depleted, the freezers are defrosted, the food is spoiled, uh, you're having to go to friends' and family's houses just to take a shower, just to use the bathroom, because we live out in the country, so when uh, our water reserve runs out, then we don't have water either, so you can't even use the bathroom at your own freaking house, which is just like degrading in a certain way and that's a bummer yeah not to mention like all my you know the internet is such a big like part of a lot of the stuff i do so i couldn't do anything productive in that realm i had a wedding on sunday that i literally had to prepare for i had to get all the songs uh i had to go to various spots around town and use their free wi-fi like a bum and just to get the songs ready for the wedding and the (laughs) The day of the wedding, just anxiety central. I was so I was so nervous. I had never been so ill prepared for a wedding before. And it was all because of this damn weather. And even this podcast coming out a little late, it's because I got backlogged with all this other crap I had to do. So apologize to the Patreons that this isn't out sooner. And uh, to rest of you folks, it's coming out on schedule because we're like I said earlier, we're going to start releasing these on Friday. So um, so yeah. Uh, I'm here, though, and it could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the thing. Could have been a lot worse. I mean, the closest I can get to anything is tornadoes. I lived in I lived in Oklahoma with my dad for a couple years, and they didn't really hit anywhere near where we were. But I always remember this because a tornado, it hit the exact same Chuck E. Cheese two <laughs> years in a row. That's already a funny story. It hit the same exact <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese. You'd say no more. <laughs> that was, that was well, a... Because it was just like, it's like God is just sending a message to this Chuck E. Cheese. It's like, move. Just get out, get out of here. Leave. I, uh, I liked their pizza growing up, though, for some reason. I have memories of enjoying their pizza. Like, yeah. their pizza wasn't terrible. And then the closest thing I can get to in terms of power going out somewhat lately was a couple days ago. And this one was pretty, this is a mystery to me because. All of a sudden, I couldn't access websites like Amazon.com and a bunch of domain website domain websites uh, pretty late at night, a little bit after midnight. 
And so I thought, okay, maybe it's an internet problem, but I could go to Facebook and YouTube, no problem. And there was other websites that I could actually access, but other ones just wouldn't load or they time out. So then I'd go online and I checked, you know, this sort of website. I was like, is it down or whatever? I think it's like this sort of kind of like Facebook. It's connected to Facebook, I think. So you can leave comments and talk about what, what's happening. And I looked at first I looked up at Amazon and there were a bunch of other people that were dealing with the same problems, you know, with not being able to get to Amazon. And then some guy left a comment and he said, um, well, you know, people wonder if they can't get Amazon, check out this page, you know, about Comcast. And there was like f over 400 comments from all these different uh, people from all over the country saying, yeah, internet and cable is out. Uh, and then like another guy said, this is really weird because I, I looked up something and, and two of Google's DNS servers were down. And so that also messed up a Comcast. And so it was, I was just, I was just, it was kind of freaky to me. Cause I was like, this is, this has to be one of the biggest widespread cable internet outages I've ever seen. And I haven't really looked up a follow up on the news to see what, you know, might've happened. But part of me was thinking, okay, I'm looking at the news. They're on Amazon UK. There was some controversy with some burka costumes. What was that about anyway? Uh, I guess they had costumes that were burkas and people found it offensive. And I could see why people from the Middle East would be offended by that, apparently. And maybe, this is my theory, maybe they started doing a bunch of cyber terrorism that night and just started attacking the United States, uh, through the internet. I mean, that's that, I mean, that widespread, that much of a widespread, uh, computer, you know, uh, internet and TV outage that, that can't just be some glitch in the system, especially if two of the servers went down at Google. So that was like really, Ooh. All right, folks, so your homework <laughs> assignment is comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash uncovering unsolved mysteries. Did you have any problems with your internet as well? And let's see, let's see, uh, let's take a poll because we got people from all over the country and the rest of the English speaking world here and it's even non English speaking. Uh, if you uh, if you lost uh, internet connection and what day was this or what time period? It, it was it was a couple days ago. Um, let, let me. I know it was uh, last week. I think it was on the weekend. I'm checking my Facebook feed right now because I remember writing posts about it. Because my power was out. I mean, I, we had no like all all of Jacksonville was yeah. without power. So that so obviously I had uh, some outages, yeah. but that was not related. October 11th at like two o'clock in the morning for me, and uh, like yeah, like I said, two days ago. Huh. All right. And well. uh, there's a bunch of people like commenting on the same thing. So, well, yeah. so I also would like to take this uh, opportunity to thank uh, the listeners that reached out to me um, before I even made that post on our page. They reached out to me and they're like, hey, I hope you're safe and blah, blah. Thank you guys. That that was really cool. That was really nice of you guys to reach out and, you know, ask me if I was all right and everything. Um, you know, it's just it's it's thank you for taking the time out to do that. I do appreciate that. 
Um, we are on Patreon, as we said earlier. You can uh, donate to our podcast if you feel like our content is worth money of any kind. Uh, you do get some special perks on there. Just ask Corin; she'll tell you. <laughs> she's one exactly. of she's one of our high tier pledges. Uh, you get bonus segments, uh, Q and As. You can uh, request uh, segments over there that will you know more than ninety percent for sure will do. Um, we should probably set up a voting sort of thing for maybe a special Halloween episode. True. Like, Wouldn't be a bad you know, idea. set up like a voting thing for our patrons or on Facebook to say like what, what's, well, we might handpick some segments and then ask them which ones they'd like us to talk about for like some Halloween special. Yeah. So if you want to donate to us, it's patreon.com slash uh, uncovering unsolved mysteries. Everything that's associated with us is going to be uncovering unsolved mysteries because we got into the field of doing or uh, talking about unsolved mysteries when nobody else was talking about the show Unsolved Mysteries. So we although what's funny is I saw a video show up later that was talking about the scared to death case that came from like this year, and it was some guy, but his, his production value wasn't nearly as high as you know, yours and I, you know, ours is. And his his mic wasn't even as good as mine, but the thing is, he did have pictures from the show though, but they were in really bad quality. So you know, just because you have pictures doesn't necessarily make the video better, um, you know, or the content better. Yeah, but didn't have that many views either. So. I don't even know what makes uh, a video popular anymore because I, I think it's cause just you and I are very passionate about this show, and I think a lot of people. You know, they remember the show and then they hear an episode and maybe they get hooked because, like, man, there's fans of the show just like me and they seem to actually know what they're talking about. And they don't just talk. They talk about the segment itself and not just, you know, the the case. And, you know, they're entertaining and they're fun. The I passion mean, does go into it a, a bit because I have seen some Unsolved Mysteries reviews and people just sit, sitting on their couch talking about uh the show and um y you know that you do have to have passion there or else it's just con you're just kind of like reading out loud what i could read online for myself you know describing the cases exactly and stuff. exactly so without further ado uh we didn't even discuss the order of the <laughs> these segments that we're going to talk about uh i guess it's going to be russian roulette right now um <laughs> I guess we'll start out the first case with one that I remember from my childhood um, called uh, Joe Cole is the name of it, uh, the name of the guy. I never saw this one until uh, Josh pointed it out to me. Yeah, this is one This is one I do remember from my childhood. Uh, they, this is one that they did play on Lifetime on the reruns back in the day, so this is how I saw it. Um, it's got kind of a little twist in the, uh, like, as far as one of the guests that comments in there that, that I really, that, that I guess that helped this one stick out to me more so. But I do want to talk about Joe Cole as well because, you know, this was, this was a really senseless kind of thing and, and it, it, it was, it was a sad story to hear about. So, actor Dennis Cole has appeared in dozens of TV shows like The Young and the Restless, Fancy Island, etc. And if life worked it worked out like a scripted TV show, his son Joe Cole would still be around today. So De Dennis Cole is a, fa uh, I guess, semi-famous actor who's been in sitcoms and stuff like that. He had this son Joe. Uh, Joe was tragically he he died tragically in his twenties, unfortunately. Now there's no good way to lose a child, but sudden random violence is one of the worst. An unknown gunman shot Joe Cole during a holdup that netted them less than fifty dollars. 
He was murdered in front of his home in front of uh, Venice, Cal- in Venice Beach, California, in one of the most violent sections of Los Angeles. And then it kind of cuts to uh, people working out in sunny California, and you know the tone kind of strikes a stark contrast here on the on the uh, segment itself. Robert Stack's narrating, he goes, uh, But Venice hides its troubles well. Indeed, this beachfront suburb is the scene of a year-long street party. The era is home to writers, artists, and musicians. Joe Cole, an actor and photographer, fit right in. As would me, and as would probably Mike. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'd fit in. At Venice Beach. Oh, you'd fit. You fit in, Mike. You'd be you'd be roller skating on the beach, down the beach every day. You'd be you'd be pumping iron in the little outside gym things they have out there for some reason. I don't know. It's like a prison yard. They have like these like outside gym equipment. Um. So, um, in Venice, Joe Cole set himself the task of documenting the plight of. Now, I find this interesting. He, he would document the plight of Vietnam vets. Um, Cole was helped by his longtime friend, Henry Rollins, uh, actor and lead singer of the Rollins Band. And just to hear Robert Stack go, you know, Cole was helped by his longtime friend, Henry Rollins, actor and yeah. lead singer of the Rollins Band. You know, yeah. it's like Robert Stack probably was still listening to, like, you know, Miles Davis and like you know the Beatles and I don't know what hey, the you fuck don't Robert, know. yeah I don't I know mean, he could be he could be listen he, he could be he down might be, he sounds like a really cool guy Stack so. might be down with Black Flag for all I know because uh, <laughs> or, uh, or listen to some Slayer you know, yeah, oh god <laughs> <laughs> that would be fucking hilarious so yeah uh, Henry Rollins was uh, Joe Cole's best friend uh, you know like. Mr. Stack said uh, Rollins was the lead singer of the Henry Rollins band. The, they were an alternative band in the 90s. They did that song, um, Liar. Um, they did uh, some other songs, but that was probably their biggest hit. See, I remember, because when I saw Henry Rollins, I'm like, hey, it's the guy from Johnny Nemonic. <laughs> uh, you know, because uh, I remember him more as an actor uh, than, than a singer. But I've heard some of his songs, and I, I, you know, I thought he was pretty good. I also remember him doing commentary for uh, the VH1 series, I Love the 80s. Yeah, he was a talking head on I Love the 80s, as was every menial celebrity in the world back then. Um, but no, Rollins is, is a really uh, awesome dude. He's got a really he's got a really good perspective. He does spoken word tours now mainly. That's what he... Yeah. He doesn't really do music much, which sucks. He hosted... Um, the show on the History Channel, I believe, called uh, 10 Things You Didn't Know About America or something like that. <laughs> um, Rollins is, uh, he's just a good dude. If you ever hear him talk, if you ever hear any of his spoken word stuff on YouTube or anything, he's he's got a really uh, logical, um, just, he's a very smart guy. And, and, you know, you see him, he's all tatted up and he looks like an old punk rocker, but he's he's very intelligent when he speaks. And he, like I said, he also fronted the old, the band Black Flag. So I'm a huge mm. fan of Henry Rollins, and I remember seeing him, seeing Henry Rollins, like someone that you expect to see like on stage or in a movie. Seeing, but to see him on Unsolved Mysteries, see, yeah, yeah, seeing him on Unsolved Mysteries with like the cameras that Unsolved Mysteries uses with that that give it kind of that fuzzy nostalgic '90s kind of glow and. Uh, it's just, it's weird, you know, it's like, wow. It is, it is, it was a very surreal thing. It was surreal. It was, it was like, okay, like, this is the first time we really have, like, a, technically a pretty big celebrity interviewed on the show. 
Because the other ones were, you know, the Tammy Lynn, Lynn Lepper, you know, not really kind of a movie star, but not really, you know. I can't really, you know, and the other ones were people that, were, that had already passed away, you know, like Elvis or you know, some of these other uh, more well-known celebrities, like Kurt Cobain and so on. Um, but to actually have, you know, one that's still alive and, you know, and, and well, and Henry Rollins, that was a very... And he was young, too. And he, he was, was very young. He too. was young as yeah. hell, because, like, now he's all gray and, and he's older, but uh, he was... He was a young little pup in this uh, was, segment, but it was like Henry Rollins, circa you know the chase of Charlie Sheen and you know Johnny Mnemonic. So. See, I would say Henry Rollins, circa the Wait album, because that was the album that. Because I know him from music. Mike knows him from you movies. You said this is season eight, right? So that was '95 or something. Yeah. Johnny Mnemonic came out in '95. Johnny Mnemonic was such a weird movie. That was like that was like the that Matrix. That was the Matrix before. Yeah, it was so <laughs> weird. Matrix. I mean, even Keanu Reeves played like the same role for for the most part. I can watch it, but I can see why people think it. You know, I love Dolph Lundgren as this crazy preacher guy. He was like a he thought he was Jesus or something, and he was also some assassin. Uh, and to pa- the, there was this uh, actor I forgot his last name, but he was this really well established Japanese actor. He was pretty good in it. I always remember the Laser Whip. And uh, I love the scene where Keanu Reeves is all like just ranting at the top of his lungs. You know, he's about, I want a cold beer. You know, <laughs> I want room service. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only Keanu line I ever know for any of his movies. Whoa. Tell me more. Anyway, I think, uh, I think he peaked at uh, Bill and Ted. Uh, no, I'm just joking. I think no, I think no. it's. Was... I think John Wick was really good. He did lately, and I can't wait for the sequel to come out. Is that a recent one? John Wick came out in 2014, I believe, or 2013. Oh, that's, that's good. That because for a while there, I was kind of concerned because he was in uh, uh, Something's Got to Give with Jack Nicholson, and I felt like his role in that was. Uh, I'm like, man, is he really going back to playing like these, you know, kind of sedated roles? You know, I kind of like. You know, I like Keanu in action movies. Yeah, like Speed and, and things like that. And then I would remember the quote from Johnny Mnemonic. It was like, hit me. <laughs> because he's like, hit me with the with the data or whatever. I could totally see that in the future. People just downloading data in their head. Yeah, I felt like that movie was maybe kind of a, ahead of its time in some aspects. Yeah, because this is the whole thing where he's all like, listen, you listen to me. You see that city over there? That's where I'm supposed to be. Not down here with the dogs and the garbage and the fucking last month's newspapers blowing back and forth. I've had it with them. I've had it with you. I've had it with all this. I want room service. I want the club sandwich. I want the cold Mexican beer. I want a $10,000, $10,000 a night hooker. <laughs> I want my shirts laundered like they do at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. How do you remember all this shit? <laughs> Your memory, man. It's like a steel trap. I don't... God. I, I looked up IMDb to oh. get that quote. Oh, okay. I'm not that good. I was There's about to certain- say... There's certain quotes I remember, but no. 
So for the people, but I, remember, who, <laughs> I remember the room service one though. For the people who don't like our chit chat, uh, you really just got pissed off in those last three minutes. So anyway, Henry Rollins is narrating now. Back to the Joe Cole profiling the uh, Vietnam vets. Henry Rollins is narrating. And he's saying, "Those men you see talking to themselves, standing next to payphones on the streets. He would bond with these people where they wouldn't give you the time of day. They tell Joe his life. Uh, Joel, uh, Joe, sorry, Joe, uh, their life stories." Which I thought was an interesting quote because if you think yeah. about it, homeless people only give you one side of them, and that's the "Hey man, can you can you please spare me a dollar? Can you spare me any change or whatever?" Yeah, they're putting on an act. They're putting on the "Help me, give me money" kind of. But you know, there's like this super interesting story to this person's life, but they're not going to tell you because you're just some stranger, you know. Which sounds ironic because so are they, and they're in more of a position yeah. of need so you'd think maybe they would be wanting to open up to somebody but you know a lot of them don't though you know and, and uh, a lot of them don't trust people right you know, they've lost trust in in other people and and that's that's kind of led to their situation that they're in is because of you know this this of trust issues and you know bet- betrayal and you know people have let them down or they've let themselves down i mean it, it, not every homeless person is just somebody who's always been an addict. really an addict or always been an alcoholic or always been struggling to make ends meet from the very beginning. There are some really tragic, just sad cases of some people who've gone homeless because their families have disowned them because of their lifestyle choices or something. Or, you know, they made business uh, decisions and uh, they lost a lot of money. They lost everything. And they weren't able to get things back together because they just didn't have a support group. So, I mean, it, it, it is, it's crazy. Uh, not every homeless person is the same. And some people aren't even homeless. So there's that too. That's what that's my, a- see, that's what my dad thinks is the case with all homeless people. He's like, yeah, he's like, they'll be on the street panhandling and then they'll go back to their $100,000 mansion. Uh, and, that's, and, yeah, and I'm just like, no, I'm pretty that's sure. That's over-exaggerating. Pretty sure that's the, not. The percentage. <laughs> yeah, the percentages are kind of off on that one. I think that's Although more- when I see, like, a kid with the fucking iPod and, and, like, new sneakers and shit on the side of the road, like, I've seen that before, and he's like, I need money for, like, to get an apartment or something or to go somewhere and i'm like dude you're you're listening to a fucking ipod and you have like nice clothes and sneak uh, don't give me well that's, you ain't that's like that's like uh like you're not homeless it's like e-begging now <laughs> there's that one story about the guy on the uh gofundme who wanted people to give him like 600 bucks because of his cable or his pa- electric bill was way behind yeah. and he ended up getting that and then some and it's just like why do people respect that form of begging more than the actual people on the street who look like they need maybe it maybe i should maybe i should go on i need a new microphone <laughs> well we're we're kind of we're kind of doing that but at least we're offering a service for your money yeah. so yeah i know i just I, it's funny but anyway, this Joe Cole guy, he would get in close with these guys and he would, you know, in, in the book, I guess it was some kind of book or something he was working on about these these homeless people and these veterans and stuff. It sounded like it would have been a really awesome book that I would have really loved to have read because I don't I would love to hear these people's stories and, you know, how they got into a situation they got into. So 
Joe Cole was unfortunately murdered before he could complete that work. Uh, at the time, Rollins and Cole were renting a place in Venice. Looking back, Rollins has a less than innocent view of life on the edge. And this is Henry Rollins talking now. You get in your little rituals when you live in a community. Wash day Friday, chicken day Sunday. For a predator, for a robber, this is what they go on. They need routine. They need habit. It was Rollins and Cole's habit to shop at a corner store a block from their house. Their visit on December 19, 1991 was forgettably ordinary until they got a few feet from their front door. Quoting Rollins here, Within one second you were going from the 90 millionth trip to the grocery store home to two guns in your face and your reality changes abruptly. Everything seemed to go very slowly and time seemed to kind of hover. One robber shoved Rollins to his knees and the other forced Joe Cole to the ground, said to Rollins, if you yell, if you scream, I'll blow your head off. I said, okay. What was going through my mind was, if I speak loud, the gun will go off. If I whisper, maybe it won't. And the gun is very delicate and has a life of its own. And if I'm cool, maybe it won't jump out and bite me. See, these are just, this is the kind of like wordplay that Rollins uses all the time, even his spoken word stuff. He's, he's really, I, I recommend checking out his spoken word yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, on you, you, can, you can tell that he's a very smart man and it probably went into his lyrics. I mean, some of that kind of stuff sounds like it could be song lyrics, you know, the yeah, guns that bite me. So robbers led them inside, and uh, Rollins said that, because uh, the robber said, Is there anyone else home? And Rollins said, you know, my roommate's home, and he was trying to deter them because he figured if I say that there's someone else inside, maybe they won't won't proceed. But that didn't seem to bother them that there was somebody inside. Quote, I was trying to think of some way to get us out of this because it's as if you're going to go, uh, if you're go going to go for some kind of movie stunt like grabbing the gun, uh, that's not going to work. That's fiction. Um, at that moment, when I thought what I thought was going to happen was that we'd be marched into the house and we'd be executed while they robbed the place at their leisure. I heard feet scuffling on the front porch and then I heard gunshots. And I remember standing there perfectly still with my hands up for a couple of seconds afterwards, thinking how strange gunshots sounded inside this room as the sound ricocheted inside the walls. And then my legs took off. I did not know that the state that Joe was in, I hardly remember even leaving the house. All I remember is getting to a phone and calling the police and told them what I thought had happened. Though the police arrived within minutes, Joe Cole was already dead, and the villains had melted into the night. Um, they put in The police put in hours interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people. The suspects probably live in the Oakwood community, you know, the, the investigators saying this at this point. Criminals always talk. Somebody knows something that happened to Joe Cole. Now it's back to Rollins. When someone dies in this way, it's not just a loss of a life. There's a mother, there's a father, and then all of us, the friends, who lost this fantastic person. And you never recover from it all the way. You always carry some of it with you, and it wrecks you year after year. You know, as mutilated a concept as justice is in this country, and how it only seems to benefit a certain skin color and a certain economic place in America, real justice is a pretty righteous thing, and I'd like to see it done and exacted on these individuals. A $25,000 reward is being offered in the case. The suspect is... Uh, this is my commentary on this case. The suspect is so vague-looking, because they have an uh, artist rendition at the end. He's so vague-looking, they're never going to find them without someone turning the guy in or the guy himself confessing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's pretty much the uh, meat and potatoes of the story here. That's but... yeah, that's the problem. I mean, these type of cases are acts of random violence, and they're very hard to solve because there's no motive. There's no there's really not much connection there's the to you know the victim there really isn't any sort of you know there's not a lot of evidence that's usually left behind except a dead body and maybe some gun casing shells you know um some of the cases and i know just for like 50 bucks i mean it reminds me of this one where there's this trucker who's just on a pay phone getting you know getting ready to call his family or whatever and these I don't know who these people are, but they showed up, drove up, snuck up behind him or whatever, got out of the car and shot him point blank with a shotgun right in the back. And just once again, for like something as measly as like 50 bucks and then just hightailed it out of there. Um, the, the, there's another guy who got shot by this passerby. He was just driving late at night. He couldn't sleep. He's going to go get some donuts at the corner store and, yeah, this this guy swerves in front of him. They, they almost collide. He stops his car because he wants to, you know, get his information, you know, as anyone would, you know, because they want to make sure, okay, insurance involved. So, you know, if there's any sort of problems or whatever, you know, they can get it taken care of. And the guy just gets in an argument with them, this, this black guy, and then pulls out a gun on him and shoots him three times. Yeah, see, the unfortunate thing, and, and, and this is okay. something that I like about Unsolved Mysteries, is, you know, if you if you watch Cops, the show Cops, if you watch um, these kind of shows, they edit it and they make it look like the bad guy always gets caught and the good guy always wins. But the, the sad truth is, a lot of times they don't get caught, or sometimes well, they cops, don't get caught. Well, cops, most of the time, is actual, usual people get caught. I don't really, I don't remember very many episodes of Cops where the guy got away. No, so it, it, on there's very, very few episodes. I mean, there are some instances where they got yeah. away, but very few. And Unsolved Mysteries and, and other shows like America's Most Wanted, there is that sort of thing where it's like, yeah, you know, this guy's still out there. And, you know, that's that is so heart wrenching for the families and for the friends, you know, that this person is not going to get justice. But it's very, very satisfying. And when they do, when there is an update, and they are caught. I mean, I always when that happens, I'm just like, yeah, you know, gotcha. Gotcha. You know, what, what uh, I don't understand and what I can't get through my head and why I would, you know, even if I thought I could get away with it. How do these people, if they're human beings, if they're real human beings, how do they live with the fact that they most likely, you know, because these guys probably escaped as soon as they they shot, you know, their weapons and, you know, Henry ran away. How do they live with themselves knowing that they took somebody else's life or probably took someone else's life? I feel like if I took somebody else's life, that would drive me to the point to where I wouldn't want to live. Like, that's how much I respect well, life. For, for me, I, I respect the life to... I mean, if someone's trying to take my life, I mean, I'm not going to hesitate. You know, when it comes to... It's either me or them. You know, so... When it comes to that sort of thing, I mean, it would be a very shocking thing. It would be something that would take me a little bit to get over. Uh, I'd probably react to it in a similar way that... Uh, uh, a character in a film called Cold in July with Michael C. Hall, uh, Dexter himself, you know, Dexter from the yeah. Showtime series. 
which I highly recommend, by the way. It's an excellent film. And I'd react the same way he did, where, you know, he shot this robber dead in his own living room. As this whole sort of, you know, finds out it's like some kid or whatever, and you're just like, you know, uh, I, I took somebody's life, but, you know, if I didn't do it, then, you know, I'd be dead or, or my family would be dead. So I, I, I'd be able to justify it in that in that sense. And I'd be able to eventually, I think, live with that. But it would, it, I would still carry it with me. Because, I think it would you know, haunt me, even if, even if I was in the right. Like that. That's one. Like I said, I'd still carry it with me, but it wouldn't make me feel like, oh man, like I, I, I can't go on living because I, I protected myself and my family from some, you know, guy who wanted to take away my life and, and my family's life. I mean, all yeah, you all you got to do is like look at the veterans that come back from Afghanistan oh, and Iraq. You know, they. But that's that's a different sort of situation. I'm talking about somebody like just breaks into your house and is trying to you know sh- kill your family and kill you or whatever. You I, don't, know? I mean, I don't know how different the situation is exactly because it's like somebody it, you're being. It's it, you're the, you're going to war. Like in in a in in a war situation, veterans like that's their thing. It's kill or be killed. Like there's not you're not really def- you're you're defending your life, but at the same time, there's always a constant. You know, f- they're after you. They're gonna they're getting after you, and and I, and I think and and it is, they do it does they it is. I mean, for everyone reacts differently. I can't sit here and say that for sure I'd be able to carry on normally if i had to you know kill someone in self-defense but i'm just thinking about the different sort of things i mean when when, and when it comes to killing in self-defense i think that's i think you might be able to live with it if you have the right support group it's still gonna just still get you're never gonna forget it it's just something that's gonna be etched in your memory until the day you die but you know if you have your family still with you and things like that i think you can you make enough memories that can kind of, and I'm mean, that's like a one-time thing. I mean, uh, veterans—they've killed some of them have just killed hundreds of people. So I mean, that's really that's really got to get to you. And of course, it, being in the line of fire. Yeah. I mean, time after time after time. So I could totally see why they have PTSD and things like that. Now with a killer, it doesn't care. I mean, like this, uh, he was this, speaking of military, uh, in an episode segment of season five of the show, Unsolved Mysteries, there was this uh, African-American guy, he was a former military guy, he's a survivalist, he goes in and he doesn't like the way his relationship has ended with his wife, so he stalks her around, follows her to her apartment, and, uh, well, she was there. He breaks into her apartment. Is there with his, her kids? She's like, "Get out of here!" And he goes. She goes. Runs over to the neighbors next door, and they're gonna call the cops. And the guy just cold blooded just grabs his gun and shoots the person on the phone. He never knew her. Uh, then goes in and shoots his wife in the head in front of her kids, in front of his kids, and then goes in and shoots the the husband in the back of the head. You know, of the, of the person who was in the lived in the house next door. And then he goes on the run, and he he lives as some kind of survivalist in, in, the, in the woods somewhere, and you know, and has eventually he gets caught though, which is which is a good ending for it. But it's still one of those things. You just they don't they have no remorse. 
They, I feel like with that guy, I feel like that was more of a crime of passion. He was consumed with jealous rage, and I think he didn't. Re- I, I think I think he's meant. I don't think he's mentally all there. Well, like, right. He I mean, he's obviously anybody you know who would react to jealous rage with with a gun is not all there. But I think that I think that's a little different than the Joe Cole case because these robbers that was a random premeditated attack. If it oh, ha- exactly. I'm just saying when somebody kills somebody like that. Yeah, they don't show very much of remorse, really. I mean, if somebody is willing to put, put point a gun at somebody to steal money, I don't think they're going to really. I don't think they're at the point now where, oh, if I kill this guy, I'm going to feel bad about it. I, I think they maybe later in their lives, but I some of these people are just career criminals. I mean, that's just like this one guy who shot a cop. And he was on the run. And as far as I know, he's still on the run. And he shot the cop because the cops were at this place he was at and he did not want to go back to jail. So, I mean, every case is different. But, I mean, there probably are some people who feel guilty about that kind of thing. But, I mean, if you're willing to fucking put somebody at gunpoint, I mean, you you would think you would also be willing to deal with whatever the consequences or or you know it's one of those things that maybe out of desperation the person was stealing money but i mean there's other ways to to get money i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna get money from desperation rob a bank or some corrupt you know institution don't kill don't kill an innocent civilian you know i mean uh i'm I'm not advocating robbing a bank (laughs) the guy might the guy probably was uh, there's probably drugs involved that's usually a big thing yeah people are at it and they, you know, and if they were an addict at the time, if, the, if these people who killed Joe Cole, if they were looking for drugs and then they, they ran out of drugs and ran out of money for drugs, I mean, they might have been high at that time. So they would not have had any sort of, they had, there's a one track mind. Drugs, drugs do that to you. Oh, yeah. You're absolutely. just like, I just want the drugs, the drugs, the drugs. I need the money for the drugs. I, I don't know. I don't, even, I don't even care anymore. I don't care. It, I, I, anybody gets in my way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna get, you know, I need my drugs. The drugs are more important than anything. I guess my final point to this is that I don't think human beings are wired to kill other human beings. I don't think we're naturally wired that way, and I think that that it takes. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, I could, as I think, as a defense mechanism, I think we can do that, like any other type of animal, but. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to just, like, straight-up killing people, you know, just for the sake of killing people, other people, yeah, probably not. But certain people, I think, are wired because of their criminal, you know, because of their uh, criminal psychosis. Right, well, so you, think, yeah, you have your mental deficients, you know, of course, like your you dommers. And... I mean, I mean, told, I mean, those people, I mean, absolutely. And I don't know what Hitler was. I don't even think he was human. Yeah, he was he something else. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. Moving on to a more lighter topic. Well, it's not really lighter at all in any way, shape, or form. But uh, this is one that Mike picked. It's called the Sarah Joe. Um, yeah, it's called it's called the it's a missing persons case. It's the lost crew of the Sarah Joe, and uh, this one stood out to me because of kind of the bizarre circumstances of this uh, makeshift grave found on an island multiple years later after this crew disappeared. It takes place in Hawaii, and uh, that's relatable to me because I was born in Hawaii. I was really? born 
in a pink ha- pink hospital of all things <laughs> and, ha- and Honolulu and Honolulu, Hawaii. My mom and my dad met when they were both in the Navy. And I was pretty much the only good thing that came out of that relationship because they didn't last very long, about five years or even less than that. When after they got married, uh, they broke, they, they got divorced when I was five and I, I don't really remember anything about Hawaii. And I, I still would love to go. I would love to go to Honolulu. I would love to, you know, you know, go with my mom and, you know, kind of show me around about the sort of, you know, places and stuff like that, you know, where we might've lived because, you know, that would be nice to, to see and a nice memory to have because I don't have any memories of that. It was I was so young. Also, because I had Asper- I have Asperger's syndrome, my developmentally I was so behind that like even if I was at the age that, you know, the biologically that I'm supposed to remember something, mentally I wasn't. I was at least three years behind. So yeah, so if I was three, I was probably like one or not even that so you know i don't really remember much but anyway on february 11 1979 in the town of hana hana on the hawaiian island of maui five local men left their small village to go pleasure fishing on a 17-foot boston whaler named the sarah joe the men benjamin kalama ralph malakakini uh scott mormon Patrick Wozner and Peter Hanchett were all experienced fishermen. They left around 10 in the morning, and it was a clear day and the weather was calm. But in the early afternoon, the wind suddenly changed direction, the sign of a pending storm. Peter's father, John Hanchett Sr., grew concerned. This is him quoted. He said, I told Dave we better get down the coast to see if we could spot those boys and wave them in. And as the storm grew, John and a friend went in search of the Sarah Joe. By this time, it was really blowing a gale. And the rain was beginning to come down, and it was storming. We went out of Hana Harbor about a half a mile and then down the coast, and I didn't see any sign of the boys. The oceans were fierce. I've never seen it get that rough. And then, of course, the father uh, started a search, started a search for the missing crew, the Sarah Joe. Uh, and he started this the next day. He, con- he continued this search with the help of a marine biologist named John Naughton, and uh, their search would, on on that day, would ultimately prove to be completely fruitless. Uh, nobody else had reported seeing the Sarah Joe. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find a trace of it. They couldn't find the, the lost crew. Uh, the following day, the Coast Guard then joined uh, because the combined efforts of John and this marine biologist weren't enough. Uh, but according to Captain Jim Cushman, of the uh, U.S. Coast Guard. They really didn't know where to look. Uh, This is him quoted. He says, The initial place where we started searching was very ill-defined because we weren't really sure exactly where the Sarah Joe had gone fishing. So it encompassed a relatively large area, and initially that first day, and then the area got bigger and bigger. So, yeah, and that first day, it was just this really... They started out as a pretty big area, and then it expanded to an even bigger one, and then an even bigger one. I'd like to and then when the, um, it, the the Coast Guard was saying, you know, it, it didn't help that the Sarah Joe's boat coloration, a blue boat with white trim, was literally the same exact color of the ocean. Yeah. So that made it nearly impossible to exactly. see them from the air. Yeah. So when the search was finally suspended five days later, 
they the Coast Guard said they had searched about seventy three thousand square miles. I mean, that's a lot of miles. Yeah. Crazy. And over the next few weeks, a few weeks, beaks, <laughs> all those birds and stuff in yeah. Hawaii, I guess. Over the next few weeks, the Hana residents come comb the local beaches, and they didn't find shit. <laughs> they, they, you know, we ain't found shit. <laughs> Looking for any sign of the missing Boston whaler, and when no trace was found, their loved ones eventually gave up all hope. But then. The case took a very mysterious turn because 10 years later, on September 9th, 1988, uh, an incredible coincidence suddenly led to a major break in the case. 2,000 miles west of Hawaii in the Marshall Islands, John Naughton, the very same marine biologist who was searched for the Sarah Joe a decade earlier, was on a wildlife expedition on a deserted atoll called the Tongi, and he spotted a small boat there. And John and his crew went on shore to inspect the wreckage. And they were shocked by what they found. Uh, this is uh, John here. He's quoted. He says, on the boat, there were still a few letters and numbers from the registration number. And immediately, I saw that it started with HA, which indicates that the boat was registered in the Hawaiian Islands. And about 60 yards away, John and his crew came up upon another startling discovery. A shallow grave. A makeshift grave, you know, and like the rocks and... There's like a little makeshift cross in, in put into into the rocks and things like that. And uh, this is John. He continues. This is when we got up there, we could see immediately that there was a human jawbone protruding out of the pile of rocks. At the time, we had no way of knowing the grave site was associated with the wrecked whaler. I mean, why would you think so? I mean, this is ten years later. You you he actually was on this island pretty soon after they disappeared. It didn't find anything. Yeah. Uh, and after finding no sign of anyone else on the island, the men contacted the Coast Guard, which is what you would do. I mean, you find a body, you know, a makeshift grave, you know, you contact the Coast Guard. And they ran a check of the registration number and they made a positive ID. It was the Sarah Joe. The grave was excavated and parts of the human skeleton of a human skeleton were, were uncovered. Dental records that identified the remains as Scott Mormon, one of the five missing men. Captain Cushman explains that a strange clue also found buried with the skeleton. This is, it was a very strange clue. It was very weird. He said, it was a sheaf of paper. I'd like to say a book, except it was not bound. Probably three inches by three inches by maybe three-fourths of an inch thick. But between each of these three pieces of paper, there was a very small square piece of tinfoil material. We have not been able to determine who placed that there or what purpose it serves. Well... According to some people who were uh, leaving comments on uh, the unsolved mystery, uns more unsolved mysteries, you know, the, their website, they said the loose paper, loose notepad paper, looks like what what I what I would call spirit money when translated into English. Please go visit a lot of Asian stores; they have very different kinds of spirit paper money. When I say spirit money, these papers are papers that are burned; they're burned to the dead. You know, so it's a kind of way maybe to honor the dead. And in the spirit world, these papers are money to them. And in our culture, in some Asian cultures, when someone someone passes away, we give these we give this money, this spirit money to them, and they burn it so that they can have it on the other side. And he says there are many different kinds of these papers. The one that was shown on this segment, I haven't seen, but it looks a lot like all the other ones found in Asian stores. I thought that was an interesting little I, I, figured it, I figured that had some kind of spiritual or religious significance to it. I mean, 
I don't know why yeah. they. I didn't know why they didn't ascertain that themselves. You know, like I know that they were like it's just a notepad. Like, is it? Do I'm surprised they didn't like make an assumption. Like, did you have to do with drugs? <laughs> yeah. Uh, experts say that the Sarah Joe could have drifted two thousand miles to the Marshall Islands, and if so, would have had had to arrived in about three months. But according to the brother of one of the missing men, a U.S. government survey of Tongi, full six years after the men had disappeared, found no trace of the Sarah Joe. If this is true, where was the boat in the time between its disappearance and the government survey? Who buried Scott Mormon? And what is the significance of the pad of paper found in the grave, which, of course, is probably just spirit money? Um, these uh, questions were left unanswered. Uh, and the family was left with this sort of feeling of maybe they might be still alive, but I mean, the chances are probably pretty slim and because they did found Scott Mormon's body, but then again, who buried him? I mean, that's another thing. Well, you know, out in that area, there's there, people are probably, you know, you got a lot of fishers and, and local Islanders who, uh, you know, they come across a body or bodies, um, they don't want to get the police involved because there's probably, you know, natives just in general don't trust authority or not authority, but they don't trust the, the government, their local governments or the local, you know, kind of mm. law enforcement or whatever. Um, so or maybe they felt like it wasn't necessary to get them involved. You know, I feel like this was the work of a native, you know, who kind of has a different mindset than our Western kind of philosophies on things or, or traditions or customs. So they see a body or that maybe they see, just see skeletal remains, you know, um, it, it, them being in that kind of water, I'm sure they, if they did perish, which obviously one of them did, um, decomposition was probably a much faster process, um, especially the fact that those waters probably weren't the coldest in the world. So, you know, the bodies probably decompose fairly quickly, maybe some of them then were eaten by sea life and maybe some bones washed ashore, ashore. but I, I feel like it was a native that came across it and felt the need to give it some kind of a dignified burial. Um, I, 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 I'm glad nobody insinuated foul, foul play on the segment because I, yeah. I don't think foul play was involved. No, I don't think foul play was involved in this case either. Um, but... When other sort of questions you have, I mean, it, it, there's a possibility maybe Scott Mormon wasn't dead right away. I mean, uh, maybe, I mean, and how did he and the Sarah Joe make it 2,000 miles in a storm without any emergency supplies or any any equipment? Um, and, you know, what? of course, also what happened to the four of the crew members? And apparently there's this article, which sadly is no longer really available to look at, which is really too bad. Um, it's a 2009 article uh, that uh, says that the family members of the missing men, they hired a PI. They hired a private investigator to look into the case and determine what had happened to the four other men, the lost crew members of the Sarah Joe. And the new general consensus amongst the family members was that in the midst of this storm, uh, Mormon tied himself to the Sarah Joe for some reason while the other four men either fell out of the boat or were knocked overboard and drowned at sea. They believe that Mormon could have survived for a short time, but not long enough to make it to the island where the boat and his remains were eventually found and discovered. Uh, also, the island is a hot spot for Chinese fishermen 
who like to fish illegally there. So the PI's theory was that some fishermen who were there uh, doing things that they weren't supposed to do, they fell upon or stumbled upon Mormons' remains in the boat, and they buried them quietly and never came forward out of fear of getting caught. And again, considering the possibility that Mormon made it to the island alive, he probably died shortly after getting there, since the island has absolutely no source of water on it. I guess that, that, that's a pretty good theory. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty uh, plausible theory. But then you have the government survey. They said that nothing was found six years later. So, what's up with that? But then I could just think maybe the government just made a mistake. Maybe the survey, they, they, they missed it or they didn't list it or something or they got something mixed up or they did a survey of a different island and then they marked it as the island where you know the body was, was found. So that's a possibility as well. I, I think is the case is solved. I, I think you know we not, might not know the exact specifics of how these these men perished, but it, it was definitely and uh, it was uh, you know is it was, it was nature. You know, nature took them out because you know they were in the elements. A storm came. They weren't really prepared. They didn't have any emergency equipment. They didn't have any supplies. I don't know what what the, why they were going out there without. That type of, you know, that's a necessity, I would think, you know, in the middle of the ocean. They probably got overconfident, you know. It was a clear, calm weather, and they just thought they'd wing it, you know, and and they were overconfident, and and nothing wrong could happen. Exactly. And the boat itself was pretty small as well, so it's not like this boat would really hold up very well to really high seas or, you know, really strong winds. So... I, I, I give a lot of credit, though, to to the father, you know, of, uh, I think, yeah, um, John Hanchett, uh, John Hanchett Sr., you know, a lot of his effort, you know, to go in in the middle of the storm to try, you know, to search for his his his, his boy right. and his friends. I mean, that, that, that he took a big risk just going in and he could have been lost at sea himself. So um, that shows you, of course, how much he cared about his son and, and probably about, you know, his friends as well. Because, you know, if he probably knew his son's friends quite well, too. So well, folks. it's a very tragic <laughs> tale. And, uh, yeah, they definitely, you know, they get lost at sea. All right. So if those stories didn't bum me out too much, <laughs> um we got another one that probably will. Uh, this one was on the Ultimate Collection under the Bizarre Murders called Friends Till the End. Um, very mysterious case, very sad case. Uh, well, let's get just get right into it. In the pre-dawn hours of August 23rd, 1987, a 75-car, 6,000-ton cargo train made its routine run to Little Rock, Arkansas. The train was over a mile long and was traveling at 53 miles per hour. So far, the run had been clear sailing as engineer Stephen Schroyer was approaching the small town of Bryant, Arkansas. Suddenly, Schroyer saw something in its path. The conductor made the horrific discovery that two people were lying motionless across the train tracks. Two boys, to be exact. From the time that we had placed... This is him talking. From the time we had placed the train into an emergency position and laid down on the horn, I would estimate about three seconds until impact. 
That may not sound like a long period of time, but when you're bearing down on two children, it's an er eternity, honestly. Man, this, this guy, this poor bastard, Stephen Troyer, he, even still in this segment, he seems mentally tormented by this. I felt so bad for this guy. Like, he felt... Well, who wouldn't be? Yeah, I mean, God, that guy was still carrying that, like, on his shoulders, and you could see it in his face, you could hear it in his voice. I felt so bad for this guy, just doing his job, and, and you know, he just... This shitty thing just ha happens, and, you know, he... You know, it's human nature for him to feel responsible in some way even though he has no responsibility o over this whatsoever but you know i god i just felt bad for that guy so also i'd like to point out on this particular segment looks like some kind of a different kind of camera is used for the interview portions because they're very fuzzy almost out of focus looking sometimes but it definitely had that very kind of dreamy kind of look to it fuzzy kind of like that 90s like interview like that you would see on like interview shows and stuff it definitely had that going on hardcore for this show so that's just a that could have been the way that they remastered the segment on the dvd i mean that Maybe. could be a possibility as well it did well i mean if they remastered it it didn't make it look any newer that's for sure it it, it looked very dated but i liked it i liked the look of it I, just as like kind of like a tech side note there i just wanted to point that out something i observed um it seemed like there was maybe some different technique used in the interviews for these um Despite the engineer's frantic emergency stop, the 6,000-ton cargo train ran for another half mile as it passed over the boys. Their bodies were terribly mangled. <sighs> as a parent, mm. Jesus. What a nightmare. The two boys were identified as 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives, two popular seniors at the Bryant, Arkansas High School. The state medical examiner said the boys were under the influence of marijuana, ruled the deaths accidental, and the boys' parents began a crusade to find out what happened and salvage the reputation of their two boys. Now, this is the father, Larry Ives, quoted here saying, I couldn't believe Kevin was knocked out on marijuana or under the influence of any heavy drugs like that because I was home a lot during the day when Kevin come in during uh, school and Linda was here at nights and we had never seen him in a state where he was spaced out or however you want to phrase it. I just couldn't see any signs that he was in any kind of heavy drugs or any kind of drugs really at all. Now, you know, it's a thousand percent possible, but that these kids were totally, you know, potheads and the parents would never know. This kind of shit happens all the yeah. time. Um, but the case, the, the, that does, to me, it just simply doesn't explain what ends up happening to them, ha what ended up happening to them. Uh, Kevin and Don were typical teenage boys. They liked to work on their cars. They liked to hunt. Most weekends, the boys double dated. However, on the weekend of Saturday, August 22nd, 1987, Kevin and Don met a group of friends on the outskirts of Little Rock. It was a favorite gathering spot. The boys left around midnight to go back to Don's parents' house. This is the father quoting the father here. They came in at approximately 12:15. He told me where he was going. I told him to be careful. He took my 22 caliber rifle and my spotlight. The boys went out to go spotlighting, which is a form of night hunting that is illegal in Arkansas, and in my opinion, incredibly fucked up and inhumane form of hunting, but whatever. Uh, one of the boys would shine a spotlight in the animal's eyes, transfixing their pr prey, while the other shot at it. Uh, this was a common activity amongst the local boys in this community. So far, Don and Kevin had avoided being caught by the police. That night, the boys chose their usual hunting ground along the railroad tracks near their home. Now, quoting the father again, 
I never was even concerned, you know, worried about him when he was hunting in the woods, because um, I never realized you could get in trouble for hunting. It uh, was, uh, I mean, you got to know that that's illegal. You would think. I mean, as a parent. And also, I mean, I, I can't help but think about this. I mean, these, these are kids. This is before the Internet, folks. So, you know, they couldn't just get on the internet. They couldn't just play the Xbox or whatever, you know, couldn't play Grand Theft Auto or whatever. I mean, they couldn't just go in and do hunting games or something on the computer. So um, there really wasn't a lot. I guess they had to do had to find something to do. And other kids did it, too. But also, to be honest, it's kind of like, why are, why are any of these parents allowing these kids to go out in the woods at night? By themselves with we weapons, I, I mean, I just, by the train tracks, I'm not trying to be, you know, oh, the paranoid guy here, but come on. I mean, you can't, that, that you can't let them do that. That's, that's just, but then again, the kids could have just done it themselves anyway without the parents' permission, so. Just like with the weed thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, and, and I guess you and I are kind of imposing our, biases uh onto this small town because there are parts of america where this is totally uh the norm you know where that happens for you and i we could never really think that that would make much well, sense yeah, but it shouldn't be the norm it's not safe it, it, i mean can you honestly say i mean with, with logically oh my my kids these teenagers are young teens you know i think they're like preteens and we're like 18 well, no, they were 16 and 17 yeah 16 and 17 so they're fairly you know there's some there are young adults i guess but at the same time you know i don't know and we don't want them out, around at night you know with a gun yeah and yeah it doesn't seem tracks. doesn't seem like the smartest idea in the world but at the same time you know i guess in that i guess if they were a lot younger then i i guess I, it would be even more like wow really you're letting your like eight-year-olds go out there that's what i was thinking at first but now that they're 16 and 17 i'm like okay i guess i can kind of see that they're the wrong rebellious teenagers they're like whatever all the other guys are doing it you know and they probably had done something or they probably had a track record of like you know they proved themselves to their parents as being safe enough with their guns yeah. and gun safety to where yeah, they, trusted exactly. them. they built up that trust yeah. with them so um <clears throat> It was 1 a.m. in the morning when all this was going on. Three hours later, Stephen Shore's locomotive came speeding down the hill. When we were about six... This is Stephen Shore, the engineer again. When we were about six poles away from it, my conductor yelled out, Big hole! I immediately recognized what we saw. And then the camera cuts back to the engineer after he said that. He just has the saddest look on his face. God, I felt bad for this guy. He goes, It looked like a body morgue they were just laid out the boys were laid out exactly parallel on the tracks arms straight down by their sides partially covered by a light green tarp laying parallel to both of them was don's 22 caliber rifle neither boy was moving quote i just started laying down on the diesel horn and i got no reaction not at all not so much as a flinch and um we just um passed over them what caused the boys to do this medical examiner concluded the boys had smoked a total of 22 marijuana cigarettes they were deeply stoned pretty much <laughs> i just read that note that i 
about that after the 22 marijuana can you imagine can you imagine, can you imagine robert stack saying that yeah they were deeply stoned pretty the, much the boys were fucked up fucked up <laughs> uh quote now this is a this is a quote from um the mom if they were if they were that stoned how did they lay down in identical positions now that's something yeah. to consider. That's something they to were positioned in ways that it was impossible for someone under the influence of marijuana to end on. So I mean that is definitely a valid point. And then one of the dads chimes in. Um, that they checked the train. It was ninety-eight decibels. Now that's compared to like a jackhammer or an air compressor. I would think it would be louder than that, honestly. But and then it goes back to him. I don't think anyone could sleep through that kind of noise. Another thing, too, my son's gun was laying on the gravel. I know my son too well. He would never lay it on the gravel. He wouldn't take a chance on the wood getting scratched. I'm sorry, folks. I know this is a sad case and this is tragic, but that was kind of a funny statement. <laughs> Especially how he said it. You, you just have to listen to it. He's like... I don't know. He's just like, another thing, too, my son's gun was laying on the gravel. I know my son too well. He would never lay it on the gravel. He wouldn't take a chance on the wood wood getting... It's like, dude, I don't know. It's like he, the gravity of the situation he's talking about his son's gun getting scratched. I, I don't know. Maybe... Well, I mean, that's the type of person he is. You know, he just knows... He tells it like it is, and, you know, he knows that his son wouldn't do that. And Fair enough. That, 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 didn't really, that didn't really bother me. I, I always thought it was kind of a funny statement even when me... i even when i first saw it a long time ago i was like that's that's I mean, not funny as an entertaining but just funny as in like that's peculiar peculiar like a peculiar i mean if you're saying it's a peculiar statement i i'm i can agree with that but in terms of like oh haha that's so funny like hilarious like i was laughing my ass off at this guy talking this father talking about his dead kid you know who you know you know, he was like, I, well, he wouldn't leave his gun like that. I mean, if somebody like re, if somebody like edited together some some of the s scenes from uh, the p episode sixteen of our podcast, and then edited together some from this one, someone could really make me sound like a horrible person with this case. <laughs> because <laughs> last last episode, I was like, oh, this was a great case, and I was like, well, not great as in the kids died. And then I'm just like, well, what he said was funny. Just that I don't know. <laughs> you could really edit this together some sound bites to make me sound like a if i was ever running for president you could make me sound like a piece of shit from this podcast um so at that point uh, they hired a personal investigator to try and find out what happened uh every time he would find something out he would meet resistance from different authorities they weren't getting anywhere five months after their sons were killed the parents held a press conference to force the police to reopen the case and look into it quote would you like to give up your son and everybody think he was smoked up and laid out down and passed out? No one wants to lay down their kid unless it's proved to be true. the truth. Then you have to accept it. That's what the, the dad said at the press conference. The day after the press conference, the case was reopened. Newly appointed prosecutor Richard Garrett had the boys' bodies exhumed for a second autopsy. Now, this time they found out it wasn't 20, but only one to three marijuana cigarettes also known as joints. It's okay on Solved Mysteries. You can be a little hip sometimes and call it a joint. Uh, 
So it was evidence that one was already dead and one was unconscious when they were laid down on the tracks, um, which obviously makes sense if they're li- how they were laid out. Obviously, they were laid out, but by who and how and what is the big question here. In July of 1988, a few months before I was born, uh, the, joy- the jury reversed the findings of the medical examiner and labeled it a probable homicide, which was smart, smart uh, relabeling of that. Then, uh, the green tarp. Neither boys owned a green tarp. Who put it there? Why? Police who searched the scene later denied that Schroer told them about the tarp. Schroer being the train engineer. Schroer says it was there. He's like, you know, you're not going to tell me that tarp wasn't there. Saying the tarp wasn't there was basically just like saying the boys weren't there. It was there. Police, again, was, they said that Schroer never told them about that. Where did this car, the, uh, where the tarp came from is unknown, but apparently it's never been found either. So that's curious. Investigations opened an intriguing lead. A week before the boys were found, a man was seen walking around in the woods. When the man was stopped to be questioned, he fired a gun and ran away. Uh, witnesses again reported the man in military fatigue walking around that night, kind of walking away from town. Now that's, um,. That's definitely something that would be worth investigating. That's a lead worth digging into or looking up. Because obviously um, if this guy's walking around in the woods in the vicinity of train tracks and the two boys happen upon him, the guy could be nuts. I mean, he's firing a gun yeah. and runs away from the cops, you know? Like, that's not the behavior of somebody yeah. who doesn't have something to hide. This one, I, I this, you know, the the one where the local witness, you know, claims that he saw two police officers... Uh, beating the boys senseless, two boys senseless in the store parking lot before tossing them into a truck and driving away. What? Now that one, that one wasn't mentioned in, in the. No. Website. Oh yeah, this is this is from uh, Wikipedia, the uh, Unsolved Mysteries wiki, and not really Wikipedia. It's wiki. There's a difference apparently. They're not the same thing. <laughs> uh, this is uh, it's a rumor that a local witness claims that he saw two police officers beating two boys senseless in a store parking lot before tossing them into a truck and driving away. It is unknown whether or not they were Kevin and Don. The theory is they might have accidentally observed a drug drop. In 1996, uh, Linda Ives released a video obstruction of justice detailing the botched investigation and cover-up of an alleged drug ring in Saline County. Several people have been implicated in, the, in this conspiracy, which has involved numerous investigations and two grand juries. Damn, I didn't hear about that. Shit. That's, uh... They definitely, definitely didn't mention that one on the segment. I guess that's what that Wikia page is good for, and we try to bring you these this kind of additional information anytime we can. I mean, if that is true, I mean, that can explain why they weren't really the sol- able to solve the case. The police were not very cooperative. There was just a lot of Maybe there were cops. There was a drug deal with cops going down, dirty cops. And then these kids saw it, and they were like, we don't want any witnesses. And, uh, yeah. So Richard Garrett, the uh, newly appointed prosecutor, uh, he comes in and he says... I think that someone took the boys, these boys' lives. They inca- incapacitated the boys, and to cover their tracks, they covered them with a tarp and laid them on the tracks. I've never carried a gun in my life, but since we started working on this, I am carrying a gun because I do feel like that uh, 
my life could be in danger at some point. If there was an alleged drug ring in that county, you know, in oh, Salem County. You know what? You're right. I mean, that would, that make, would sense. make sense. That would make a lot of sense. Hey, prosecutor, keep your nose out of our business kind of thing. That's like the women's prison killing. Uh, the the There was a bunch of corrupt. That's a whole other segment. Frontera, we'll probably, yeah. We'll probably cover that next episode. I think we already got two two contenders for next uh, episode there. Um so whatever it takes, however long it takes, as long as there's anything to investigate, as long as there's anything to work on, we'll do it, is is the kind of the final quote from one of the mothers. And then the dad, man, that the ends with the dad, and it just, oh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, he's quoted as saying, and, and it's the scene shows the dad walking up and down these very train tracks that the kids were found on, and it's like, yeah. it's like su- the sun setting, and... That's he, a heart wrenching, yeah. you know. Because you know, my my dad's very southern, and it's like I could I could just as well picture this being my dad saying this. He's quoted as saying, "Hundreds of times I've been out there day and night, just trying to get into my mind what could have happened or what did happen. I've been out there at night to see how far you can see the train, how far can you hear the train, how far is the train. I basically think that they walked up on something that they was not supposed to have seen." I think they was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think in my mind that they was murdered and was put there. And that's how these segments. I mean, you couldn't help uh, but feel for him. I mean, my heart goes out to him and, you know, his family. You know, that's, they still don't, it's still unresolved, this case. Although this case first aired on the October 12, 1988 episode. It was also the subject of a book, The Boys on the Tracks by Mara Leverett published by Bird Call Press in 1999. It, uh, and of course, the segment remember it ranks as one of the most remembered one in the series. Uh, Scott Johnson and Norman Ladner are two other cases involving youths who might have been murdered after observing drug drops. Uh, the ca- case is unresolved. Police later found evidence of stab wounds on Don's shirt, and the investigation changed from probable homicide to definite homicide. Tips at the telecenter suggested that he and Kevin were murdered by drug dealers. Could have been these dirty cops. Uh, and that they may have stumbled onto them with the drugs. However, no suspects were ever named in the case. It was dirty cops. Uh, uh, and in 1995, the investigation into the murders was officially closed without their killer captured or identified. I mean, if there is some validity to uh, that th- that rumor that it was these you know police officers who were corrupt and were dealing drugs and some kind of drug ring in that area i mean it would be fairly plausible that that's why these boys were and wound up dead and why there hasn't really been justice served as you know screwed up as that is i mean you think the justice system would you know be able to serve justice even though, even against people who are trying to uphold, you know, the law. But, you know, sometimes, you know, in these small counties and these small places, you know, the, the, if the police station or whatever becomes completely corrupt, then, you know, it's very hard to have any sort of justice. Because what hap- how can you have justice when the law itself is, is unlawful? When the law itself is, 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 you know, it's blind to the you know, the law, the rules of the law. Yeah. You know, it's, it's these small town, these small counties, man. It's like, there's the good old boy network with, with the, uh, police and the, uh, the, the sheriff and the, 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 that local government, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a good old boy network. And 
you know, if you stumble across something that you're not supposed to, then they'll just as soon kill you than, uh, you know, arrest you because they feel like they can get away with it because it's kind of like up to the local jurisdiction to make those kind of calls. And if they have the whole kind of board in their back pocket, then they can kind of get away with this stuff a lot of times. Uh, there's a, uh, on the Bizarre Murders, on the Ultimate Collection, there's a segment called... Um, trailer terror where um this trailer is burned to the ground and um these girls are missing and uh, again it, it was a small town and um the brother had told his the one of the victims told his brother you know if if anything happens to me it's the sheriff's department and he you know drove the point home and just pointed his finger in his brother's face and said listen to me if anything happens to me it's the sheriff's department and then something happened to him and it was one of these small town things and it was uh, thought to be drug related so but the thing yeah. is you, you just don't know though because then you got that crazy no. guy shooting off guns in the woods too so well you got that but i mean maybe they hired the guy maybe they hired the guy to do that or whatever to finish the job or something true maybe i mean that's a possibility as well i mean you know in these cop lands so to speak i mean uh, nothing is story out of the question um but once again, you just don't have any evidence. We don't have anything to really make any sort of conviction. But it's very frustrating with with that 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 kind of thing goes on, and and still goes on. Oh, I yeah. mean, I guarantee there's still a bunch of cop lands in some you know town somewhere, small town. It doesn't even necessarily have to be in the south. It could be in the Pacific Northwest. It could be in you know in the East Coast or you know in California somewhere. I mean. It, it, it's, it is sickening to me that the people who are supposed to uphold the law and protect us and, you know, and follow the letter of the law, you know, could also be, could really be breaking it and could be responsible for, you know, killing people, silencing people, and, you know, it, it's, and they just go on doing it and they never, justice is never served. And that's just, it's just, Dirty cops piss me off. Like that's the thing that really just, yeah, corrupt cops is. It, 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 it's you know it, it's they're every bit as as bad as any other killer to me. Oh yeah, even worse because the people have yeah. put their trust in them to uphold you know the law and in and, and protect and serve you know. Um, so we're we're gonna have to switch gears here. I'm running out of time personally. I have to run and jump on to a a, a Halloween gig here at a this yacht club that's by my house and uh but but before we go though i did really want to bring this up this is something that uh mike first uh showed me and then uh one of our listeners commented on the facebook page so i did want to talk about this because i brought this up on one of our previous podcasts um guitar player and lead vocal former lead vocalist from the band blink one a2 tom delonge uh if you have any vague interest in that band at all, there's no, um, it's no secret that he's always been super interested in aliens and UFOs. And I mean, he's essentially dedicated his life to being basically a UFO researcher. Um, he's, he's used his star power to, uh, get access to uh, a lot of these high, higher up officials, you know, and kind of climb the ladder, I guess, so to speak, to, uh, meet these people. And uh, so he's he's got a book that he's released that's supposedly uh, nonfiction about uh, UFO, um, you know, encounters and stories and all that, anecdotes. Uh, I have not read the book yet, though I would like to. 
Uh, Mike, I think you were saying something that the book was uh, a little more on the fictiony side than what people, yeah. what would they would like you to believe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, recently, um, WikiLeaks published um, UFO emails that were sent to the Clinton campaign, uh, namely uh, Clinton's campaign manager, uh, John Podesta. Uh, there were about, I believe, 25 email correspondences between Podesta and DeLong about uh, UFOs. Now, um, I mean, there's kind of a lot to say about this, but I'm trying to sum it up as best as I can. Uh, John Podesta is all, has always been uh, kind of a UFO advocate, and he's always been big on, you know, exposing that truth, which is very awesome that there's somebody up in, you know, that level of government that uh, is interested in that. He actually said, uh, because he stepped down early last year from his position as senior advisor to Barack Obama, uh, before he did that, he tweeted, uh, finally, my biggest failure of 2014, once again, not securing the disclosure of the UFO files, hashtag the truth is still out there. I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a senior advisor to President Obama tweeting this. Um, and then Hillary Clinton went on the Jimmy Kimmel show, uh, and you know I don't know how much water this holds with most people, but she said that she would release um, any kind of information uh, relating to to Roswell, provided that doing so would not pose a threat to national security, which. Um, I find that interesting because Bill Clinton was actually interviewed about uh, UFOs when he was still in office, and and he was kind he kind of like you know with a, a wink and a grin like kind of blew the question off you know kind of like oh I don't know anything I gotta try to do my best Bill Clinton impersonation oh I don't know anything about I I fuck it I'm giving up on the impression <laughs> he's like Hank Hill <laughs> I'll tell you what I don't yeah. He's like, I don't know anything about the any of that stuff, you know, the UFOs or anything like that. He's like, I'd like to know. He's like, I wish they'd tell me, you know, if there was anything to it. He's like, I'll, I'd like to know. But uh, he's like, you know, but he was kind of grinning the whole time. Like, what a stupid question. You know, that's kind of how he was treating the question. Like, I did not know anything about those UFOs. I did not have sexual relations with an alien being. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> but anyway, Tom DeLonge, uh, DeLonge, DeLonge, whatever, however you want to say it, um, so, some uh, excerpts from his email is um, is as follows. Uh, I would like to bring two very, quote, end quote, important people out to meet you in D.C. This is to John Podesta. I think you will find them very interesting as they were principal leadership relating to our sensitive topic. But both were in charge of, mo of the most fragile divisions as it relates to classified science and DOD topics. Other words, these are A-level officials worth our time and as well as the investment to bring all the way out to you. I just need two hours from you. Now, this is all in relation to um, Roswell and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, he wanted to have a, a casual and private conversation in person with Podesta. Uh, possibly for a movie that uh, Delange has been working on for about UFOs. So I'm sure, you know, that would have been a nice, um, you know, interview to have. Um, there's some other names that are thrown around in here, like General McCasland, uh, who was uh, in charge of the whole um, 
Roswell kind of cover up as far as like where the uh, I believe like where all the de- various debris and all like the various bases that they were dispatched to and all and um McCasland apparently in public has denied the existence and all that um but according to Tom in this email um quote he mentioned he's a quote unquote skeptic he's not he just has to say that out loud but he is very very aware as he was in charge of all the stuff. When Roswell crashed, they shipped it to the laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. General McCaslin was in charge of that exact laboratory up to a couple years ago. Um, Now, according to these WikiLeaks, it's uh, unclear if Podesta ever responded to these messages, but he has shown interest in UFOs in the past, um, as I said earlier. Um, So, yeah... uh, you know, all that's going on, you know, some articles like this article, the art, the particular article that you sent me, Mike, I, I, you know, I just thought the editorial nature of this article was kind of fucked from the beginning. It's like they, they do give you the info, but the, the guy writing the story is a douchebag. He starts off the mm-hmm. article by going, um, uh, the former lead singer Blink-182 Tom DeLonge has publicly admitted to his obsession with UFOs, but that still doesn't explain why he was sending two cryptic messages about aliens, air, spacecraft to hit uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, Chairman John Podesta, as the Wall Street Journal, Journal reported earlier today. Uh, the former rock star's UFO emails became public in the latest WikiLeaks dump published earlier this month. DeLonge, who is best known for his shitty guitar riffs and vocals... In the songs like What's My Age Again, email Podesta at least twice. Okay, let's just stop there. (laughs) Why why so personal, bro? Like I don't Exactly. You like, wow, like pump the fucking brakes, man. If this article had any kind of uh, if I respected this, uh, the, the writer of this article at all, like he lost all my respect there. Now, granted, I do like Blink-182. They're not my favorite band in the, in the world, but I do like them. But if it had been any guy from any band, uh, I mean, you, you have this very kind of informative stuff that you're reading, and then all of a sudden you read DeLong, who is no, best known for his shitty guitar riffs and vocals. Like, dude, <laughs> that's the most like subjective thing you could well, write in a piece that's well, not not really subjective i mean isn't that like being subjective is so isn't that somebody that's your opinion to... subjective is oh, your okay. is your all i thought it was yeah being, I, I would uh, say like, it's the most assholishness thing it's, it's 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 a dick move it really is it it doesn't make you look good it's it's unprofessional it's the type of journalism that is just unacceptable, in my opinion, in a major publication or any of that kind of thing. I mean, if you're getting paid to write, you know, to, to be a journalist, especially nowadays when this is a very hard, you know, business to get into. I mean, I've thought about it, but I'm like, you got to know people. You got to know, and sometimes it's so frustrating because you got people who are a lot less talented than you might be. When it comes to uh, as a writer, when it comes to writing and so on, but they know the right people, and that's why they get the job. And I always hate that. I hate workplace politics. But anyway, um, that just makes you look like an ass. The main thing, I, you know, obviously, if, I wouldn't it, write that, even if I didn't like his vocals or his music. That's not the way you. But right. but but Art. if if you go even deeper than just the surface level asshole assholeness of the comment, 
you know, obviously they're trying to spin this to where Tom DeLonge is a shitty guitar player and vocalist from a crappy crazy. punk pop band and crazy Tom DeLonge is talking about UFOs and crazy Tom DeLonge is they're, yeah. they're, they're just making the guy seem like a buffoon. They're making him seem like he's <laughs> he's just a jackass, you know, like, oh, this shitty guitar player from this washed up punk pop band is digging into UFOs now, but they... <laughs> They they they're totally like nullifying the gravity of of time and effort that Tom has dedicated to putting into this, and and, and they're also neglecting the fact that if any out of any UFO researcher, you know, someone with the star power and the clout that Tom DeLonge has been has been afforded because of his success in the mainstream. How much more easier is it going to be for somebody like Tom to talk to these guys who who are in the know, quote unquote? I mean, think about if me or Mike or hell, even uh, a, a well-renowned UFO report uh, like reporter or investigator was to try to contact, you know, like Jay Allen Hynek or you know someone like that. Yeah, yeah. Say they try contacting high-level government officials. Stanton Friedman. They're gonna look at they're gonna look at these guys and be like, oh, another you know another one of these wacko UFO researchers. But if you got Oh yeah, you remember that band that your daughter really likes, Blink One Eight Two? Yeah, the uh, lead singer guitar player is uh, really uh, gotten serious about UFO investigation. Even if you think that sounds silly, it's like you at least know who he is. Oh, I know who that guy is. He was on, you know, he's been on TV. Their music videos, they've sold millions of records. It's like this guy isn't. This guy did something right. You know, Tom did something right to be able to bring his band to to that kind of level of star power. Because Blink One Eight Two is still incredibly huge. If you think I'm lying, go look it up. Believe me, as Donald Trump would say. God, I can't believe I just quoted that guy. But anyway, um, so yeah, obviously they're trying to make in this article they're trying to make DeLong come off as a nut job. But that uh, the San Diego Union Tribune actually wrote a much more fair or balanced. Um, article about kind of what what went down and everything and, and uh, i'll post that onto our uh facebook page here so you can read up on that um so you can kind of see more like a unbiased kind of look into it but it's it's really fascinating and, and we're getting closer man like we're, we're getting closer to figuring out about roswell and all that and and um you know i, I think we're finally getting to the point to where we as a society are ready, you know, we're, we're ready to, 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 for the truth, I guess. We can handle the truth at this point, I feel like. So that was a very interesting article. It has to do with uh, anything UFO that comes up, I'm going to want to talk about. So I thought that was really uh, worth mentioning. All right. Yeah. So, so that's all the time we have, folks. Unfortunately, I got to run. Uh, and I'm looking at the time here, and uh, we still managed to clock in around the same exact time that we do for all of our podcasts. So hey, that's just you know we just like to talk. I I gotta I gotta run too. I got math homework to do, and gotta get ready for class tonight. Hopefully, I pass my second math test. I did. I passed the first one. Oh, Let's congratulations! Good for you, man. The second one. Uh, there, there were some graphing problems I know I got wrong, but I get like two mulligans, so maybe those will be the two mulligans, and then we'll see what happens. But well, I know be, I got those. Well, you know, because <laughs> you because you wear glasses, you're you're obviously smart. Isn't that how the stereotype goes? Well, everything else I was fine with. It's and then there was like one other problem near the end. I think I did all right, but we'll see what happens. I'm not too worried about it because for one, there's six tests. I pa- I passed the first one. If I don't do spectacular in this one, it's not the end of the world. I can still go in and 
do better in the next ones, and then do well in the final, and I'm still good to go. So it's not like I'm trying to keep some A. I'm not trying to get an A. I'm just trying to pass. All right. Well, Mike's going through uh, doing good on his test there. I survived Hurricane Matthew. You guys are hopefully all alive and well. Um, uh, run through all the pertinents real quick before we wrap up. You can become a fan of us on Facebook. We're posting shit on there all the time. You can get in touch with us on there, facebook.com. Probably start a poll before the Halloween episode, but it's not... We're not there yet. But so. that, yeah, that's uh, also um, patreon.com slash un- uncovering unsolved mysteries. If you want to donate to the podcast, you get a bunch of extra bonuses on there. So don't think that you're just giving us money and not getting anything retu- in return. You do get stuff in return on the uh, Patreon. But I'm just going to make you go over there and look at it. I'm not even going to tell you uh, all that you get from uh, doing that. Um, but we appreciate so much the people who have already d- uh, donated yes. their, their money. I mean, absolutely. God, thank you, so thank you guys. Seriously. You are, you were just, you blow my mind that like anybody would give us anything, but hell, we thought it was worth a try and people have opened their hearts. Uh, old Bill Burr <laughs> reference. 